Well, good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. I'm Rowan. Uh, so great to see you tonight as we gather together. I'm not sure if you're aware of, aware of why we as a church keep going through the Bible. Uh, as Ben said at the start, uh, we're a church that really is excited to hear God speak. And the highlight of what we do each week as we gather together is to open up the Bible, like Christina's just done for us, because we get to hear what God has to say. We get to hear what He has to say to a, to a people in a time and a situation different from us. But here's the thing with God's Word. He tells us that it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, that it always does His work. So why don't we pray now that God would prepare our hearts to hear and understand what He said, that by His Spirit He'd move us tonight to see who He is and to see who we are. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You so much for the joy that it is to be able to hear Your Word to have you present by your word tonight. And so we ask that as we think through what this word in this confusing age and time that seems so far away means to us, that you by your spirit would make it clear. You'd help us to see ourselves as you see us and you as you see yourself. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. Well, fear is an incredibly powerful feeling. I don't know if you've, you've felt the, the, the kind of push of fear in your life. It can cause us to run, kicking and screaming away from whatever the thing that we're afraid of is. It can cause us to shake like a leaf, freaking out about something that's in front of us, or to freeze like a statue. So many different ways we respond to fear. But when fear turns up, right, our rational brains, if you're anything like me, they check out. That's called a fight or flight response. Something happens, you freak out, you just run, you don't really think about it, you run across a road and just narrowly miss a bus, right? Crazy things happen when you're afraid. But one of the things I've noticed in life is that we often fear the wrong things. Let me put it another way. The things that we fear don't often turn out to cause us much damage, but it's the things that we don't fear, the things we think we have sorted that cause a whole heap of damage. They come from left field and, and kick us off our track. The year was 1998. I just finished my high school exams. My parents had gone on holidays a few days before me, and I came home and was gathering stuff together. I'd just been out shopping a bit earlier, and I was gathering up the things in our house ready to go and join my parents on this holiday that we were going away for. And I remember that moment, you might have done it tonight when you left your home, where you think, okay, have I got everything? It's that moment of a pause. You kind of walk into the lounge room and you just stop and you, there's the quietness and you think, okay, have I got everything I need? As I was standing in our lounge room, about to go on holidays with my parents, in the quietness of our house, I hear this noise in our roof. It's like this shh noise. I'm like, what is that? And it sounded kind of heavy, like big. <laughs> And like something was in the roof cavity, just, I'm like, maybe I'm dreaming. I just stand there. And, you, and you, your heart, right, it starts to beat. You kind of was already beating, but it starts to beat faster. And you're like, what is that? And I'm like, is that it? And I'm standing there waiting. And then like a couple of seconds later, shh, and chills went all over my spine. It was at that moment that I realized that I'd, I'd come home from the shops gathering things together earlier that afternoon. And when I'd come home, that our house alarm had been set off that it was bipping that something had happened. And that happened occasionally. We had a dog, a big dog, a Rottweiler. She was awesome. So I invited her into the house. She kind of ran around being like, this is great, because she wouldn't really hurt a flea. And uh, she kind of came in, and she just went straight to the pantry. Now, the pantry is where her food was. I didn't think anything of it. I'm like, sweet, you know, all good. And, um, and out, out she went. But 
as I stood there standing in the lounge room listening to that sound, I remembered that the manhole to our roof was in the pantry. Where was the first place that the dog ran? And suddenly that fear came over me again. Now, we lived on a five-acre block, so not many neighbors. All, all, all the blocks around us were 25-acre lots. So I could yell at the top of my voice, and no one would hear me. Literally, you, you could only see one house about 800 meters away. That was it. And the rest, and there really weren't any people there. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And so I'm there, I'm thinking, as I hear this shh again in the roof, I'm like, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out to the garage. There's another manhole to our roof in the garage. I'm just going to check. Sort of, so I, I go out, I quietly open the kind of door into the garage, and, and I see that um, the car that's parked next to the ladder that was just leaning up against the wall that went into our manhole, now the ladder was normally there, but the car had the mirror turned back. That wasn't normal. I'm like, that's it. <laughs> At that moment, I kind of, I head and, and I go kind of somewhere quiet in the house, away from where the noise was in the roof, and I call the police. Because I'm like, man, I need someone to come. I can't handle this. I don't really want to stay here. So I call the police. I walk up the driveway. I stand out the front. And then, then the police turn up 15 minutes later, right? We were a fair way away. They came pretty quick. They, they kind of get out of the car thinking like, oh, this could be someone on the roof looking a bit excited. But they kind of like looking at me as if to say whatever. Anyway, they quietly walk down. They walk into the garage. And he's standing there just looking up. And then, sure as eggs, you hear this noise. Shh, in the roof. And he slowly pulls out his gun. He's got a torch on top of his gun. The other guy's there like, oh, we're going to get someone. He's like so excited. I'm freaking out. What's going to happen? There's going to be a shootout in my roof. <laughs> and so I'm like up the top of the driveway and this policeman walks kind of up, up the ladder trying to balance the ladder and his gun and his torch and lifts off what is happening in the roof. Fear grabs us, doesn't it? And as we get to the next chapter in Isaiah... We meet a man that was even more freaked out than I was that day. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. <laughs> this took place during the reign of Ahaz, whoever he is, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Okay. Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Ramelia, went to fight against Jerusalem. But they were not able to conquer it because it became known to the house of Aram that became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim. Now, we hear that, and we're like, oh, I've got no idea what you just said, Rowan. Like, seriously, I read that, and I'm like, what is that? Well, here's a map to kind of help you understand what is going on here. Basically, you've got this land of Israel, is the, is the whole kind of the big bit. You've got the northern kingdoms, the blue bits, and at the very top, if you can remove the question time, we're going to have questions afterwards, so you can use that number. Thanks. But at the very top, you can see there's Rezin, king of Syria is Aram. So Syria is that green color, Damascus, kingdom of Aram of Damascus. That's, that's Syria, right? And, and they're another nation, a big nation at that point. Uh, down and to the left, you've got the kingdom of Israel. They're the 10 northern tribes of Israel, those that broke off. And then down here in the, in the purple, uh, you've got the kingdom of Judah. And that's Ahaz, who's kind of like the good guy. Israel's writing to Ahaz, to the kingdom of Judah, the two tribes, the Davidic line that will come through. He's in, he's in that bit there. You've got the kingdom of Israel, where we've got Pekah, son of Ramelia, king of Israel. I can't even say the names properly. Just say it confidently and move on. Um, and so he's there. So what's kind of happening is Judah, purple guy, Ahaz is the king, is freaking out because the, the king of, of, of Israel, which is their Pekah, and then uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, are going to band together and come down and knock out Judah. 
Basically, on his northern border, on the roof of Judah, Ahaz is freaked out about who's creeping around on his roof. A bit like I was that day. And then he's not just like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. He is freaking out. He's kind of like pacing backwards and forwards at the top of his driveway. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with this problem in my roof? And then listen to what he says, 7 verse 2. The heart of Ahaz, Judah, bottom, king, and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. You ever been that afraid? You ever been scared of what will go on, needed help and needed someone to come? Let's just say that day I had a sense of what they felt as I stood at the top of the driveway. As I saw the policeman's face go white as he went up that ladder into the manhole. But the resemblance doesn't stop there. See, as the authorities that day climbed into my roof space, there's this moment where I thought it was going to get worse. The policeman opens the hatch, he puts his head in, disappears into the roof, and a few seconds later, you just hear, ah! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but seriously, that's what you heard. You're like, what is that? And then there's just nothing. And I'm like, there's no gunshots. <laughs> and then he pokes his head back down, laughing, saying, it's a lizard. Now, there was a one and a half meter goanna, like Australian lizard. I come from Australia. We have big lizards. And it was in my roof space. And it did sound like something heavy was kind of moving along like a person. The policeman was like, I was freaking out. And then he just left it there. (laughs) It's Australia, right? It'll get out. It got in. It'll be fine. It gets rid of the rats. See, there are times in life that what we fear is fickle and feeble. And that's point number one in your outline tonight, fearing what is fickle and feeble, because that's exactly what God was trying to point out to Ahaz. Ahaz is worried about those creeping around in the roof of Jerusalem. He's worried that they're going to come down and knock them out. The fear he had of these impending nations coming in, God says, was actually nothing to fear at all. It was fickle and feeble. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go with your son, Sheer Jashubah, to meet Ahaz. Say to him, ready for it? Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. The fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramelia. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the sons of Ramelia, have plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah and terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tebal's son as a king in it. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. How often do we fear things in life that are fickle and feeble? See, the God of the universe, the God that Isaiah worships, the God who wrote this word to him and to us, is the true and living God. There is no foe he cannot beat. Not only does this God know the future, he's in control of what happens and what goes on. He says in verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim, that just a bit above Judah, will be too shattered to be a people. I'm going to wipe them out, these big nations you're worried about. So God tells Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, trust me. Trust me. See, what God is saying to Ahaz at this moment is that the powers in his roof are nothing. 
They are nobodies. God is in control of them. They're nothing to worry about. The question for Ahaz, the king of Judah, is who will he listen to? When you're faced with fear in life, with foes that seem large, the question is, who will you listen to? Who will you give in to? Human wisdom says to Ahaz, look, these, these nations feel huge. They're about to come and wipe you out. So go form an alliance with maybe someone bigger than these nations coming down. If you've got a map, you'll see here, there's one nation that looks little but is actually huge. In fact, they're the big superpower of the time. That's called Assyria. See them right at the top? The Assyrian Empire? They're just hovering with their armies and chariots and their awesome superpower nature nation. Now, the temptation for Ahaz is, maybe I could, I could make friends with the top guys. It's like saying, can I go to America and go, hey, can I borrow some of your F-35 jets for a bit? Can we kind of work together and knock out these people who are coming against us? It seems wise, doesn't it, to form an alliance. Human wisdom says you can do it. Jump into bed with those who are kind of a little bit edgy. They're not God's people, but hey, they've got some power. And then come and they'll wipe out Syria and Israel above them and you'll be safe. He could trust his own wisdom or he could trust the God who is in control of it all. The question for Ahaz is, who will he trust? Have you ever been in that situation? Where there's some pressing fear or, or some situation you can't see a way out of? You know what God says? You know what, what his word says and how to act? But you, you just feel like it's a little bit antiquated. God's word is just so distant and old. Look, I, I can see a way forward that isn't, that's a bit edgy, but you know, it, it's okay. Have you ever been in that situation? Well, you kind of know you shouldn't do it, but it just makes the most sense and quells your fears because you're actually doing something to see it happen rather than trusting God's way in something. Have you, have you ever been there? A number of years ago, uh, Sarah and I had some friends who owned a business. It was a pizza shop. Actually, they, they bought this pizza shop. It was one in our local town that we went to after youth group and it was a great pizza place. It was awesome, wood-fired pizzas. Uh, and they bought this shop. As they came to buy it, they looked at the books and it looked like a really profitable business. So they shelled out their money, bought the shop, and it had been about three months that they were running it. And they're realizing they're losing loads of money, bucket loads, just going out the door. They're like, why? It looked so much more profitable on paper before when we came in. Then they worked out that the previous owners hadn't been paying their employees properly, nor paying their tax properly. And so these guys who were Christians who knew the right thing had a decision to make. Would we continue doing what is right and paying the right amount of tax and paying our employees properly, and lose money, potentially because they'd already bought in, lose all their stuff, their house, their savings, but serve the true and living God and trust Him that His ways are right, or think, it'll be right, these guys have been doing it for a while. They paid their taxes, lost their house and their life savings, but stood firm before the God whom they trusted in. The question for Ahaz and the question for you and me tonight is this, who will you fear? Because so often the presenting fears are really no fears at all. Will we fear what is happening around us and the ebbs and flows of life, the challenges to comfort and wealth? Or will we fear the true and living God? God, in His graciousness, to help Ahaz make the right choice, offers him a sign. Through Isaiah, he offers Ahaz a sign to confirm God's in control. You're like, how good is this God? He's always wanting people to come and see 
His way. He's always giving us opportunities to go, do you see how good I am? Literally, we'd love to just wipe you off the face of the earth because you're so dumb, but I, but, I, but I love you. And so look, let me give you a sign to show I'm in control. You name it. As high as the heavens, as low as, as Sheol, you know, whatever it is, you name it, I'll do it. But God had already given Isaiah a message. So the first time Isaiah went to meet Ahaz, he brought his son with him. Now, his son's name was Sheer Jashub. Awesome name. If you, if you guys, you know, Tim and Amy, thinking about baby names down the track. <laughs> I mean, that's what marriage is for, right? One of the reasons. Sheer Jashub, it's a great name. Sheer Jashub. What it means is this. It's an awesome name. A remnant will return. Remember, Isaiah 6, there's a smoking stump that God will keep, 10% of his people. A remnant will return. God says to Isaiah, take your son who you've called. I've told you to call. A remnant will return. Rock up. Introduce him to the king. Hey, I'm Isaiah the prophet. (laughs) This is a remnant will return. Do you want to listen to God? You get the sign. But now, God offers another sign as well. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, king of Judah, down the bottom. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now, it's not a good practice to ask for a sign. Biblically, uh, lots of people kind of go, oh, we're going to ask a sign from God. You know, God, if it's your will that I, that I do what you say, then make me really rich, then I'll do it. <laughs> or, you know, God, um, I'll follow you if, you know, the next car that goes past is red. And you're like, that's not red. Oh, but there's one after it. I don't know. And, and <laughs> you're laughing because you've been there, right? We've all done it. See, biblically, it's not good practice to test God with a sign. Gideon did that in the book of Judges. He's like, Lord, you've said you'll go with me, but I want you just to to make sure it really is you, so I'm going to get my lamb's wool fleece or my Ugg boots or some sort of fleece that he's got. I'm going to put them outside, and and the first night, I can't remember which way around it is, but I I want the ground to have dew on it, but my Ugg boots not to. And that happens. And he's like, okay, just one more test, (laughs) please. So, So the next night, I want it to be the other way around. I want the ground to be dry and my Ugg boots wet. And God does it. But it's judgment on him. He should have just taken God at his word. Asking for a sign is a symbol of a lack of trust in God's word. Jesus says in Matthew 16, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. To ask for a sign is a mistrust in God. But, and here's a big but, you ready? It's also a wicked generation that will not listen to the sign God has provided. It's also a wicked generation that will not listen to the sign God has provided. What will Ahaz do? (laughs) Will he listen to God's promise? Verse 12, Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. And you're like, man, it just sounds like the typical smart ass, right? Look at him. I won't ask. I don't need to do this. I'm King Ahaz. And at first reading, you're kind of like, hey, he's got the right response. He's read his Bible. You know, he's a, he's a Bible guy. Your word's enough, God. I don't need signs. And you kind of start going, he's on the money. But here's the thing. What we find out is there's something else going on for Ahaz. He's got another plan, another, another way to kind of work forward. He's thinking about that superpower, Assyria. And he's going, no, don't give me a sign because I want to do my own thing. You see this in people's lives quite often. You know, the person who's kind of living with their girlfriend and being like, I'm a Christian, but you know, I just want to... And they go, you've been telling them for ages, you need to move out. You can't be living in the same house with your girlfriend or your boyfriend if you're not married. It's just not right. You shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be sleeping together before marriage. It's what the Bible's really clear on. 
You've been saying it for a while, then suddenly one day they come along and they go, you know what? It's all right. I'm going to do the right thing and move out. And you're like, brilliant. But then you later on find out it's because, well, they decided to dump her and they started flipping with someone else. And you're like, ah, so really, while it looked like they were doing what was right, there was something going on underneath. Ahaz, he's not a nice guy. He's not your kind of happy-go-lucky kind of dude. He's so worried about his own future that he's willing to sacrifice his own children to other gods to secure it. That's the type of king that we're dealing with here. A man who would do anything to get what he wants. He'll stop at no lengths to secure his future. And you can tell he's got his sights set on the Assyrian superpower. I want their strength. With the Assyrians on my side, who can be against me? They're so much bigger and stronger than Syria and, and, and the kind of Israel above them. He's trying to put one foot in each camp. There's a little bit of this God stuff. I'll kind of tip my hat to him and I'll put another foot in the other camp of seeing my way go forward. Up until this point, Ahaz has put a foot in both camps. But something changes in the text right here. I don't know if you noticed it. Look at verse 11. Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask for a sign from the Lord your God. Do you see that? Your God. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. At that point, Isaiah's God, the true and living God, is Ahaz's God. In some way, there's still hope for Ahaz that he'll listen to the name of Isaiah's son and remember the remnant that's coming back. Despite his wickedness, there's still hope. God says, I'll give you a sign. Just ask for it. Ahaz says, no thanks. I don't need it. Then listen to what happens after that point in verse 13. Isaiah said, listen, house of David. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? See that? My God. There's a shift. It was your God as Isaiah spoke to him, but now in verse 13, it's my God. There's a hint in the grammar about what's gone on in Ahaz's heart. He's at that moment made the choice to reject God's offer, to reject God's input and control over the world, and he is going to go, no, I will make it my way. He's rejected the true and living God and placed his security in what is futile and false, aka Assyria. Point number two, trusting what is futile and false. Trusting what is futile and false. Ahaz has the choice to trust that which is futile and false, to trust and get his security from mankind, or the eternal and all-powerful God. But what we see about this God in the message of Isaiah is that this is the God who is all-powerful, all-controlling, sovereign over all. There is no one like him. Why on earth would you need to trust in Assyria when you've got this God? If you're here last week, you remember what happened in Isaiah 6. As God gives Isaiah this vision of of his glory filling the the throne room of God and his glory covering the earth and him being holy like no other, the God who is in control of all things, who, who looks after human history, who controls all of human history. To the true and living God, the superpowers of the day, the political strengths of, of the ancient Near East, they're just like like a dog that calls to a whistle. In fact, the passage speaks of them as insects that swarm to their master as God whistles. The superpowers of the world are in the hands of this God. There is no one like Him. Listen, from verse 17 of chapter 7. The Lord will bring on you, your people and your father's house, such a time as never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. 
On that day, the Lord will whistle to the flies at the farthest streams of the Nile, which is like Egypt, one of the other superpowers, and to the bees of the land of Assyria. All right, boys, come in. All of them will come and settle in the steep ravines. Such vivid language. In the clefts of the rocks, in all the thorn bushes and all the water holes. On that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the hair on your heads, the hair on your legs, and even your beards. Now, this is not a personal grooming lesson. He's saying, that's it. That was the line Ahaz. Now, the nation you're going you're gonna to run to, the big superpower, <laughs> watch this, they're going to come out and shave you naked. And they'll do it because I tell them to because I'm the God of the universe and you do not mess with me. Friends, do you get who this God is? Have you seen His power and control over absolutely everything? He created the universe, the whole world is in in His hands. Every breath you take is is from His permission and command and control. The nations around in human history are but a hired thug for God. Don't worry about it. They'll they'll get paid back for what they do. They're still responsible. In the face of fear, we need to remember, no matter what that fear is, when the world is crumbling away, when we think we know better, when we think we've got a, a better solution outside of God's will, outside of trusting in God, that God is sovereign, we are not. Our plans and purposes are completely at the mercy of God. His plans and purposes always happen. Ours, well, we'd like them to happen, but how often do they? As we get up each day and plan and dream, it will do every single one of us good to remember the absolute stupidity of trusting in what is futile and false. The wisdom of the world around us. What Ahaz should have done was look to his past, to Israel's past. See God's trustworthiness, that he keeps his promises, that he he, he is in control, that he is like no other. He is holy and the glory of, of him fills the earth. That's what he should have done. Because when you recognize who God is, the only rational response is to wholeheartedly trust the Lord. Isn't it? Who can be stronger than him? What other solution can I provide that will be better than the God of the universe? The only rational response, if he is the true and living God, is to put your life wholly in his hands. What is it you are trusting in at the moment? Where do you run to for security? To who or what do you turn for your hope? You know, everything will be okay as long as what? How do you finish that sentence? Everything in my life will be okay as long as what is that? What word pops into your head? As long as I've got family, as long as I get good grades, as long as I've got a job, as long as my parents think positively of me, as long as I've got money, as long as I've got my health, as long as I've got a boyfriend or girlfriend or or a spouse... All those things are good, but if you think they'll save you, that's just futility and stupidity. They will not deliver. They are not in control of the universe. My family, my job, my money, my health, my relationships, they don't don't control squat. 
But the true and living God, <laughs> there is nothing He is not in control over. Why would we do anything else but wholeheartedly trust in the one who is in control? <laughs> to Ahaz, God had given a shoot in the air. In chapter 7, verse 9, he said, If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Friends, whatever we rely on instead of trusting God, whatever we run to that isn't Him, will eventually turn and devour us. When it doesn't deliver, it will collapse and we will collapse with it. We will not stand. The only one to trust is the one who has delivered us from death and offered us life that lasts forever. The true and living God. Ahaz trusts in the Assyrian superpower who before long will come in and devour him and the nation of Judah with him. So God says to Ahaz, this king of Judah, you may not want a sign, but I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign so that you know I am in control. Chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. And for those of us who know our Bibles, we know that, that word God with us, Emmanuel, was a name given to Jesus. And we immediately think of this promise of God with us as a positive promise. Imagine living in the presence of God. And that's point number three tonight. Living in the presence of God. What would that look like to be in the presence of God, to have God with us? Surely He's going to fight our battles. Surely He's going to be for us and with us. And it would be amazing for God to turn up. And you're like, seems a weird sign. Ahaz has done bad stuff, but God comes and promises He'll be with him. But here's the thing. God with us does not always mean God is for us. God is with us doesn't necessarily mean God is for us. Because the presence of God can also be the presence of God's judgment. It's point 3a, the presence of judgment. See, the presence of the holy God who Ahaz rejected will be the presence of God's hired razor, Assyria. They will come in and shave Israel, and then Judah, like a razor, shaves their hair on the head and legs of people. The nation will be laid bare. There'll be no agriculture. You see this promise of a child that is born, and then as they're raised, that they've kind of got this cow and two sheep and curds and honey, and you're like, what are you talking about? Why is he speaking of? What he's saying is, Assyria will come in and knock out all your agriculture. All you'll have is a cow and two sheep. You'll be able to milk the cow and have curds and some wild honey. That's all you'll be living off because you're going to be under exile. You're going to be taken over from this other nation. Once God comes, he brings his judgment. You reject him. He rejects you. The nation Ahaz had hoped in Assyria would be the nation that God uses to deliver his judgment. The presence of God is sometimes the presence of his judgment. Friends, don't play games with God. I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what you think of this God of history, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, the God who was turned up in the person of Jesus. 
But please learn from human history. This is just history. You muck around with God, God will come. You will feel His presence. The problem is He will come, and if you are not trusting in Him and His way of salvation, He'll give us what we deserve for rejecting the true and living God. Don't put anything else in God's place. Don't run after other saviors. It won't work. They will not save you. It will not go well for Ahaz, and it will not go well for you. In chapter 8, and we're looking at kind of the, the whole of 7, 8, and 9, a little bit of 9. In chapter 8, Isaiah has a second son. We heard about his first son, awesome name, Shear Jeshub. Uh, the remnant will return, or remnant shall repent. His name was important, because at that point, he's saying to Ahaz, it's time to come back, there will be a remnant. But in chapter 8, Isaiah has a second son. It's a great one, cracker of a name. You ready? Chapter 8, verse 3. The Lord said to me about his second son, Name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Like, that is an awesome name. I mean, imagine trying to get the kid in trouble. He's sitting at the dinner table. Meher Shalal Hashbaz and whatever, and Jashahir Jazab. You're like, whatever. You guys, <laughs> stop it. Why such a long name? Well, the name means speeding to the plunder, speeding to the spoil. The first son whose name was a remnant shall return. The second son's name was speeding to an implosion of where you are going, to being plundered. And then we get a timeline of when this plunder will happen. Before the, boys know, before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria, the, the nations above, will be carried off to the king of Assyria. Assyria is going to come in and wipe them out, the nations above you. And then they're just going to get closer to you. The spoils are there. The time to return to God has passed, and the name of Isaiah's second son describes the state of Judah. Now they've rejected God, speeding to the plunder. The sign of God with us, a son called Emmanuel, will mean that God's presence will be felt in judgment. Look at verse 13 of chapter 8. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only He should be feared. Only He should be held in all. Don't run to Assyria, it's too late. He, the Lord of armies, will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he'll be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The sign that Judah, the, the, the bottom kind of nation they're going to get, is that God is about to come amongst you. He is not to be toyed with. He will wreck you. He will trip you up if you do not come to his amazing grace. See, to not regard God as holy, to not treat him as so different, so other, as he deserves to be, is, is to say that he's common. It's to show by your actions and deeds, you think God is ordinary and unimportant and incapable of doing anything. No offense, God, but I don't think I need you. But that is not this God. He is unlike any other. He is the one to be feared. He's the one to be treated rightly. Because if you really do fear Him and treat Him rightly and trust in His promises, you have nothing else to fear. All the other fears of this world are just crumble away because what can they take? He is the God who is in control. His plans and purposes are good. If you trust Him, well, nothing can be thwarted. If He's given the solution to life and death and life forever, what can they take away from us? But if you reject Him, 
His presence will be a stumbling stone. Every single one of us in this room will feel the presence of God. Every single one of us will come before this true and living God. Paul says in the book of Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will come amongst us and his presence for those who reject him will mean judgment. But for those who have taken him at his word, his presence is the hope of sanctuary. The sign of God with us is a promise of judgment, but also a promise of hope. See, this child that will be born, bringing in the judgment of God soon to these nations, was also a sign pointing forward to another son who would be born. It's like this child has got two trajectories. There's two things that are pointing forward to the exact circumstances that are going on in this political battle here between Judah and the nations around them, and God's big picture solution to the whole problem. And in that, a promise of hope. And that's point 3b. It's our last point. Isaiah 9.1 says this, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, the land of the east of Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have, have seen a great light, a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Here is a promise to turn the uncertainty of the world into the security that we hope for. This idea of Galilee of the Gentiles is the area in the north of Israel. I don't know if we can chuck a map up. Sorry, it's not in the right order. They'd be like scrolling really fast now. Um, but I'll show you where it is. Galilee is above um, the Sea of Galilee and then to the left. So you see that at the top, um, it's the very top under the queue for questions. There's that kind of big sea thing, the little one, then a big one. Uh, that's Galilee. And the area there to, to, the, to the left is this whole area of Galilee of the nations. And the reason why it's called Galilee of the nations is because that's where all the attacks came from. Because most of the superpowers were above and off to, to the right. And they came down into what was originally the whole of Israel um, and would, would, would conquer them from the top. It was the area where there was the greatest kind of mix of nations. There are Arameans there and Canaanites there and Hittites and Hebrews and Mesopotamians. They were, they were all kind of hanging around in that, in that kind of pocket to the, the left of the Sea of Galilee. It was the area where the darkness of the nations around would first come and hit Israel and take them over. But the promise of God's presence, of God with us, was a promise that God would bring light to that area of darkness. We flick forward to Matthew as Jesus arrives on the scene 700 years after this is written. Thanks for coming. And then we hear this, Matthew 4 verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, that area that was up there. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, why does it tell us? Why does Matthew tell us where Jesus went to live? Like, who cares? You know, no one what are they called? Chronicles. No one chronicles my life to go, well, Rowan moved into Sandringham and that was a nice area, partly because who cares about Rowan, right? But why are they telling us where he lived? Look at verse 14. Jesus went there to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. 
that people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Then Matthew tells us from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. God with us becomes a promise of hope in the land of darkness. God steps onto the scene to end the wars that exist, to end the war between us and God. At the start of Matthew's gospel, God couldn't have been any clearer about who this son that was prophesied through Isaiah, this God with us, really was. Look at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus, God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. All this happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God's God with us. Friends, as you look to Jesus, you see God's promise of hope turn up and also his promise of judgment. But as Jesus steps onto the scene, we see the king that we are looking for. The king that is the solution to all of Israel's issues, to all of our issues. Chapter 9, verse 6, listen to this. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be the ruler over them all. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The king of Israel was supposed to stand in God's place to affect God's justice and do God's work. That's what Ahaz was supposed to do. But Ahaz and most of the sons that follow so often failed to treat God as holy, as different, as the one who was in control and they gave in to their fears and followed failing saviors. But God promises Isaiah and Judah and us that a son will be given a son whose reflection of his father, of the father, is absolutely perfect. He will reign as David's son on the throne that God promised in 2 Samuel 7, where his kingdom would have no end, that he would bring life forever, peace for all those who come to him. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Not a wonderful counselor as in two words. You know, like you go along and, oh, my counselor was wonderful. They gave me lots of help. He's the one to give lots of help. You know, he's a wonderful counselor. This one who would come is not one that we go to to make our life better, to fix up our failings and help us get through. He is the wonderful counselor. As the rest of humanity seek human counsel as if it were the last word, God with us is the last word. As we put our trust in the futile and false opinion of man, Jesus is the last word of God. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. An expression that's used throughout the rest of the Old Testament to only refer to God Himself. God has come in this Son. He is God the Son. This picture is of Him. It couldn't be higher. It speaks of Him as the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. It's giving a, a well-rounded picture of the One who is to come and His Godness. Simultaneously a baby and the mighty God. Simultaneously a son of David and the appointed ruler and the wonderful counselor whose counsel and insight are never wrong, whose plans are always perfect. 
But as we look at this word written 750 years before Jesus, the one thing we need to notice is that God's timing is so often different from ours. So we think about us and making decisions about the fears that face you and I today and tomorrow. We've got to look at how long it took for these things to occur, for God's promise of hope to happen. It took 700 years before Jesus came. The Assyrians would wipe out the north in 735 BC. The exile of the south of Judah takes place in 587 it's not until about 484 BC that, that they come back in and the temple walls of, of God's kind of place start to be rebuilt. But even then, the people that come back in are under this oppressive regime, one after another. Where is God with us? And that might be you right now. Where is God's promises? Well, where am I at? Why hasn't God done everything He said He would do yet? Seven centuries go between the prophecy and the arrival of Jesus. What does that tell us? When we are told to trust God, we're not simply being told, trust God now and it'll make your life better. Trust God now and your family, will, will, things will go well for you. Trust God and everything will be well for you. What we're saying is, trust God. His plans might be hard. They might bring periods of, of, of great prosperity. They might bring periods of great loss, of, of poverty. There might be times of hardship. There might be times of joy. God does different things at different times according to His plans and purposes. But what He's saying is, trust Him. He is the one that's in control. Don't look at the weak and feeble things around you to go to them. Have a long view of what is going on, that God is in control of it all. So often, our scale of God's promises is so small. And encompasses our 70, 80, 90, 100 years of life at best. We miss the glory of God and the glory of His plans and purposes and how big they are. The reminder of Isaiah to us today is that we ought to trust the one who is the Word of God, Jesus. We ought to trust that He is coming back and that He will judge the living and the dead and for those that have trusted in His death in our place, our future is secure. There is peace between us and God. And He will be the ruler that will rule the nations, all nations forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, it might not look like it. The temptation to pull back and to run to so many other things that we want to put our trust in is so large. But in the face of changing historical tides, in the face of shame and the fear of suffering... The message of Isaiah to, to Ahaz and to us is trust God and no one else. Don't give in to what is fickle and feeble. The fear of man, these things are nothing for God. Don't trust what is futile and false, the, 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 the ideas of human wisdom, but boldly run and trust God with us who is Jesus. Put your life in His hands. Now, I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know if... Jesus is your king, some guy you're vaguely interested in or, or someone you're just coming for the kicks to check out. Hey, it's great you're here. We love you checking out this stuff. But the message from God to you tonight is don't muck around with him. You will feel his presence. He is in control of everything. And he said to you, come to my son. Come and trust this son who is God with us.
who died your death, who faced the judgment of God for you, and follow Him. Trust Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that so often we are afraid of so many things. Afraid of our reputations, our futures, of what people think of us, of what we'll be able to do and achieve. Father, we are aware that we aren't in control of much at all. But we are so thankful that you are in control of everything. That your plans and purposes are good and that you, through your word, reach out to us and draw us to yourself. We're sorry for not treating you as holy. We're sorry for trusting in things that are weak and feeble and not you. Please forgive us. And give us great boldness tonight to come to your Son, Jesus, the one who saves God with us and put our lives in his hands and entrust our security and hope and reputation to him. Captivate us by Christ, we ask, so that we might live in your world no matter what happens, knowing our future is secure. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, friends, there's a few questions that we've got from tonight. Uh, let's run through them and see if I've got any answers. Um, where does the idea come from that Ahaz wants to run to Assyria for help? I can't see it in chapter 7. Um, it's great. Thank you. You'll see it in other parts of the Bible that that's going on and hints in chapter 8 and 9. Um, but if you want to see it kind of most clearly, you've got to jump to 2 Kings. So come with me to 2 Kings. Uh, hey, I don't know. I don't, I don't think, I was going to say, can they put it on the screen? Who knows? Um, 2 Kings, chapter 16. Um, we'll go from verse 15. King Ahaz gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar, offer um, the morning of burnt offerings and the evening of the grain offerings. Um, he splashes against this. Where is the bit? Yeah, here we go. King Ahaz, verse 17. Cut off the side panels and remove the basins from the movable stands. This is in the, in the temple of God. He removed uh, the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on its stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. So you're seeing here uh, throughout 2 Kings that basically, um, uh, you're seeing it above that in this whole, whole section, that he basically goes and does that. So we read it from outside of the Bible at this point. Uh, so helpful point, check that out, read through 2 Kings. You can also see it in 2 Chronicles uh, 28 if you want to write that down. Uh, next question. Is it always wrong to ask for a sign? Uh, Jesus says, yes. A sinful and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Uh, the point is, God has given us signs. So it's wrong to ask for something more, to say, what you've given me is not enough. I need extra help, God. 
He's given us His Word. He's given us His Son. What could be bigger than God the Son taking on human flesh, becoming man, living, dying in our place? It's crazy. The, the one who sustained every heartbeat on the face of the planet allowed those He created to nail Him to the cross. He sustained their heartbeat while they nailed the hammers, the na- they hammered the nails in. Jesus says the only sign we'll get is the sign of Jonah. What is that? Three days in the belly of death and he rose from the dead. History has the marks of the resurrection of Jesus written all over it. That Jesus did rise, that people worshipped him as the true and living God and they were happy to die for the fact that they saw him alive. Groups of people were alive at that point. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, go and ask them. They're still alive today. When I'm writing you this, people who have seen Jesus are alive. That is the sign we've been given. And so to say, God, I need you to give me more, it's not enough, is to say, God, Jesus is not enough. (laughs) It's offensive to him. So don't ask for signs. He's told us what we need. We have it in his word. Come to his word and then work out how we might live in response to that. Next question. Isaiah probably demonstrated that he was a true messenger from God previously. But what if Ahaz had not known for sure that Isaiah was godly? What if someone who we cannot trust comes along telling us to do something like ask for a sign from God and we become skeptical of a true messenger of Him? Yeah, really helpful question. And this is one of the areas where I'm super happy that we live in this age, the age after Jesus. Because the way that you worked out if an Old Testament prophet was really a prophet of God was, did the stuff they say happen? So basically it was like, okay, this is going to happen and you either had to trust them or not. And then wait to see. But they never spoke just with a new thing. They always spoke in with what was in line with what had gone beforehand. So Old Testament prophets always spoke of the law that had been given and what God had said previously and the way He'd acted. And they kind of extrapolated for what that meant for the people now. And then God spoke through them to say, this is what will happen. You know, within 60 years, within, within the, child, the time this child grows, those two big nations will be wiped out by Assyria. Just watch. And part of what you saw with an Old Testament prophet is you just had to wait and see. Now, the stakes were higher for Old Testament prophets. If they got it wrong and the thing that they said didn't happen, you killed them, stoned them. Today, people are like, yeah, I've got a prophecy from God. And people are spouting stuff left, right and center. God's telling me stuff. We get it wrong and they go, oh, well, I was wrong. You know, I want to raise the stakes a bit. You get it wrong. If you're speaking for God, should we stone them? No, we shouldn't. (laughs) But what happens in the New Testament is... uh, False prophets, they're just weighed in the church. Uh, they're to be weighed in 1 Corinthians, it says, about what they're saying. And they're not speaking about, thus God says, they're applying the Word of God to our lives. But false teachers, you've got to boot them out of the church, says John in 1 John. And so in the New Testament, what we've got is God's final Word. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, great part of the Bible. As opposed to the rest of it, which is just as good. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1. Looking fingers is great. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews is telling us how we kind of apply what happened in the Old Testament to us today. And he said this as he starts the whole book. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. What do we get here? We see that Jesus is God's final Word to us. 
We don't need God to reveal anything more because God the Son has come. And so today, if someone rocks up and says something different to what Jesus told the apostles to write down and what we have in the recorded apostolic witness in the Bible, then we know it doesn't line up. We, we chuck it out. And if it's what, they, what it lines up with what's being said, will we apply it and, and take it? Not because this person's had a, an amazing word from God. So often we think prophecy is like, whoa, we want to seek the prophet who'll come and tell us this word. Old Testament prophecy, you weren't sure of it. The Old Testament prophets longed for the day that God would speak finally and clearly through His Son. And we have that. And we want to go back and ask for another sign. We want to go back and ask for a prophet to speak into our world today and give us new news. God the Son has come. Jesus has turned up and He has spoken. And after He did His work at the cross, Hebrews tells us He sits down at the right hand on the majesty of high. He still speaks through His Word that is living and active and comforts us and challenges us and changes us. So we don't need to worry about, well, is this God telling us a new thing? (laughs) No, it tells us that the next time God wants to speak in the next age, the next change, there'll be a trumpet sound that the world cannot miss. And everyone will recognize that the King of kings and Lord of lords has returned. And we'll see that He is God and God is with us. So we don't need to worry about God speaking in a new way or something that I might miss. We have the Word of God to us, so much surer than even King Ahaz had, because Jesus has come, because God is with us. Okay, I might, where are we at for time? We're doing a Mexican standoff. They're waiting for me to say one more question, and I'm waiting for them to turn the thing over. Um, I'll keep going as long as there's questions here. This is the last question. Great. Uh, what do I need to do if I feel like I've already gone too far for God? to still love me. How do I face God now? Will God judge me? Thank you. Uh, Fantastic, fantastic thing to be asking. The reality is the Bible tells us there's only one thing that is too far from God. And and it says that uh, in a way, not not to say, great, keep on sinning, (laughs) but in the person who's asking this question is feeling like we have gone too far. What that too far thing is, is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's to reject the Holy Spirit's testimony about who Jesus is. It's to say that Jesus is not God with us, that He isn't God the Son, that Jesus was just a dude who lived and died and said some cool stuff. If you reject Jesus, that's too far because you're rejecting your only hope of being saved, the only one who's died in your place. But at the same time, we need to hear the warning from Scripture that's saying, don't test God. Jesus might come back at any minute, and then it might be too late. Don't be like, oh, I'm just going to wait a bit longer. I'm going to have a bit more fun rejecting God. No, life lived to its fullness is life trusting in the God who is in control of the universe and living His way. You're missing out. You might think you know better, but you're trusting in the feeble and weak things of this world. Stop it and trust God. How good His ways, how great His word. So if you're at that point where you're feeling like, I feel like I've done too much, I've gone too far. And do what God is calling you to do. What God called Ahaz to do, to repent, because now is not the time of saying it's too late. God is waiting. Uh, one Peter tells us, He is waiting for the point for more people to come back to Him, and then Jesus will return. So come to Him. Stop living that way. Confess your sin to God. Pray to Him and say, Lord, I'm sorry for the way I've acted. You know what I've done. You know the depths of my heart. Thank you that Jesus died in my place. Please forgive me and help me to live your way. Start that relationship with God. 
and say, help me, Lord, and then chat to someone. God didn't you know, create us to be solo Christians. He, he made us to be in community with one another. That's what church is about. So chat to someone who invited you or someone who knows you. Actually have the conversation. Actually, I want one more step. If you're in that position tonight, go and tell someone you feel like you've gone too far. Share with them. I mean, God knows what you've done, and He knows everything. So don't worry about what the other person thinks. And if someone comes to you tonight and says, look, I just want to share, you know, I feel like I've gone too far, and they share what it is, don't be like, ah, idiot. Like, don't do that. Because God knows your heart too. <laughs> share it with someone. Because God loves people to come back to Him. It's why Jesus has come. And in fact, tonight, the fact if you're asking that question, it may well be God by His Spirit drawing you back to Himself. To say, come, come and trust my Son. Let me pray. Father God, we are thankful that, that You do accept us back. And all of us haven't treated You as we ought but that through your Son, you've offered forgiveness. Father, by your Spirit, so convict us that we won't be so proud as to reject the salvation that's on offer. Help each of us to be real with you. You know how we are. You know what we are like. So Lord, tonight, by your Spirit and through this Word, put this picture of Jesus before us as Emmanuel, God with us, and draw us to yourself so that we might live for you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.